Well, a very good evening to all of you. Um, I'm Mukulika Banerjee. I'm director of the South Asia Center at LSE. And it takes, uh, gives me great pleasure to also say that this is the first public event the South Asia Center is formally hosting. Um, and we are absolutely delighted that uh, our guest this evening is Ms. Shobana Bhartia, as you all know. Um, and Shobana is a very special guest for a number of different reasons, um, but also because many of us, and, and the fact that so many of you are here this evening, is testimony to the fact that we all know of you, but haven't had a chance to engage with her in um, a discussion to get her views on things. And what I'm going to do this evening, therefore, is um, pose a set of questions to Shobana, but really let her speak, but to just to structure her comments, I'm going to ask the occasional question and then let you uh, roll. But Shobana, as you all know, is the chairperson and editorial director of the Hindustan Times group. The Hindustan Times newspaper is one that many, certainly of my generation, know, and even some young people might know from a screen on their computer. You might not know what it looks like in, in, in the flesh, so to speak. Uh, but is one of the most widely circulated and read newspapers in India. Uh, I did look up the figures. It's over 2 million uh, circulation. So it's in the top six uh, newspapers in India. It's huge. But your designation, uh, Shobhna, is of the Hindustan Times group. So can you tell us a little bit to start with what the Hindustan Times group actually uh, consists of? What are the different publications underneath it? Sure. Thanks, Mukulika. Um, I find it a little awkward. I'm sort of off. Do you want to turn I'm around back. a bit? And, and I do that? Yeah. 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 Okay. I think that's better. Yeah? Yeah, that's better. Um, the Hindustan Times group primarily started as a newspaper organization, as a print media group, in the sense responding to the needs uh, pre-independence. This group was started for a certain purpose. But today, the Hindustan Times group actually comprises of two listed entities, uh, which is a company that publishes the Hindustan Times, Mint, and also has forayed into radio, internet, and many other areas. Second is, again, a listed entity, and that's a vernacular entity in that basically publishes the Hindustan and a very strong online offering that supports Hindustan. The reason being because uh, we are seeing far greater growth happening in the vernacular space in India. Uh, more than 70% of India actually lives uh, in the villages, in the smaller areas. English is not the predominant language used over there. So the kind of growth that you see in vernacular, uh, Hindi being, of course, the predominant vernacular language, but even the other languages, is much more. So to bring about greater focus, we actually spun off uh, our vernacular offering into a separate listed entity, which also, in a sense, is part of what you just call the Hindustan Times group. So, uh, and then the, uh, there are other sort of uh, digital uh, properties that we have, uh, whether it's sites for jobs or whether it's a kind of a 360 marketing solution because the entire traffic and the greatest threat to newspapers is now the encroachment by the online media. And even an advertiser typically is looking for that solution. So quite apart from what we do in terms of generating content and producing newspapers, we also have something which is called Digital Quotient, which is actually a complete solution for a product 
for an advertiser taking care of his needs in terms of product positioning, in terms of marketing, in terms of a whole digital campaign, print campaign, uh, and uh, trying to help them anecdotally. So uh, these are the various, uh, in, in a broader sense, these are the various components. And under all of them, there are other verticals. But that's what really comprises of the Hindustan Times group that you spoke about. Okay, so the Hindustan newspaper, which is published in Hindi, how does its circulation figures compare relative to the English one? Well, the figures of Hindustan, as I just said, you know, vernacular is growing much faster. Uh, so it's a rising circulation. It's a rising circulation. Even English is a rising circulation. I mean, India is quite an envy of publishers because we are still seeing growth even in English. Though uh, when I speak to... Uh, many other uh, fellow publishers all over the world. It's an industry that's, it's a sunset industry. But in India, we are still seeing growth in English, but that's single digit. As far as the vernacular is concerned, it is actually double digit. And uh, it's, a, it's a more robust industry. The figures are also, uh, you know, we go by what is called readership in India. And therefore, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you as a household get a newspaper, only you would be reading your own mm. unique paper. A newspaper is shared. And therefore, there are different numbers in different states depending on economic parameters. So there are some richer states. And therefore, the socioeconomic category that you're talking about is actually very different. And then there are other states uh, where a newspaper is read by four or five people. So the Hindi newspapers, we typically look at a multiple of about 3 or 3.5, whereas for an English newspaper, you look at a smaller multiple, assuming that the person who's purchased an English newspaper, uh, they have the purchasing power to have uh, a paper to service each person who reads it. So to, to that extent, if you were to look at the readership of the vernacular, I would say it's not only double of English, but it's almost five times that of our English group, though the uh, importance in the sense of the uh, voice share that you have is very often disproportionate to the numbers, because English is still the more preferred medium for advertisers and for opinion makers, but actually the numbers stack in favor of vernacular. Okay. And, and no other Indian languages, it's just Hindi, isn't no, it? No, the other Indian languages also play a very important role in the states, whichever they actually uh, sort of uh, cater to. So whether it's the southern papers, like the Tamil papers, uh, they do have a very strong voice. Mm -hmm. But naturally, those are all uh, restricted to certain pockets. And Hindi is a much more universal vernacular language. So mm -hmm. thereby, Hindi papers are more in terms of numbers and influence. But uh, in certain unique states, you do have the local relevant uh, language newspaper actually having far greater weight than the English newspapers sure. too. Like Manorama. In, Malayale, in, Manorama. Malayale. In fact, that is one of the largest uh, circulated newspapers in the country. More than our English papers are. Even more than Times of India. Yes, even more than Times of India, yes. <laughs> Which is extraordinary. Of a single edition. Yes, okay. See, also, uh, India is to that extent a very unique country. So it's not like, you know, you have... Uh, uh, British paper, or it's a little more like the American model where every city has its own paper. So there are mm. very few so-called national papers because it's just such a diverse country when each state is very unique, each state has their own priorities and their own needs. So therefore, we have papers that actually cater to particular geographies and they aren't really national papers. Uh, the paper you just named, Times of India, has fewer, um, many more editions than, say, the Malayalam Manorma. 
and thereby they may have a larger number. But in absolute terms, if you actually look at a single edition paper, mm-hmm. I would say that the largest in the country is Malayalam Manorma. <laughs> and again, that's vernacular. But it also, but don't forget the paper I'm talking about also comes from a state which has 100% literacy. Yeah. So therefore, the readership in that state is much more and it lends itself much more to newspapers having a higher circulation than, say, a state like Bihar, where I have a large uh, market share, but it's one of the most illiterate states. Yeah. And do you think, what has changed in terms of brand loyalty to newspapers? Because earlier, households were associated with, you know, and that's certainly true here. You are a Daily Mail reader, or you are a Financial Times kind of person, right? Is there that sense of brand loyalty, which I know growing up in India, we certainly had. There were households that were Statesman households, or Times of India households, or Hindustan Times households. Has that remained or is that a changing landscape? Oh, that's a completely changing landscape. I think brand loyalties are becoming extremely weak because now you get content on the go. I mean, nobody waits to get their particular brand. Sure, you know, you may have the app of your brand if you want to, but even there with mobile space being crowded out by people downloading so many apps, not necessarily pertaining to news. News is amongst one of the apps that is fighting for space. So people consume news on the go. It doesn't matter what the brand is. It doesn't matter from where it comes. And therefore, brand loyalties are becoming much weaker. Mm. And especially in the upper echelons, we feel that it's become very, very weak. Uh, But again, going back to vernacular and going back to the smaller towns, brand loyalty counts for a lot. Because there they uh, very firmly believe in the printed word. I would say even more on the printed word than they do, say, for instance, on television or some other medium of sharing content. There the printed word is the gospel truth. And brand loyalty counts for a lot. But that's only really in the... uh, interiors but uh, the moment you try and move up to the socio-economic category a plus a um, which is where a lot of your advertising money comes in from you see our products are very heavily subsidized it's a very different model altogether so though your readership may come from a different bucket your advertisers are looking more at your sec a a plus sec b at the most and that's where there's no brand loyalty it's actually very very worrying for us because the brand loyalties have totally collapsed over there and you need to win that battle constantly because if you are to make a business case for publishing, that is a very important target because you're totally dependent on ad revenues. So what is the business model? The business model is very skewed in favor of ads because it's a very heavily subsidized product. And I still remember that in the 80s when I actually got involved with the newspaper, we used to all say that the more we circulate, the more we lose. And therefore, we want to draw a line and say, okay, we are not going to take the circulation above half a million. And we stuck at half a million for the longest time because we thought we didn't want to lose more money. And all the revenue actually comes in from the uh, advertisement side. So the higher you circulate, the more is your power to price yourself. And you price yourself upward with as many readers as you add. But even that is no longer that elastic because there are now competing mediums. So a lot of the spend is going on mobiles, a lot of the spend is going on television. Television is now outperforming print, outgrowing print. So therefore, you know, in now in this very competitive landscape, your ability to actually price up your product is somewhat limited. But so, 
the revenues are coming totally from advertising. Uh, again, the vernacular model changes and the English model is different. But in the English model, the prices are ridiculously low. Yeah. They don't even meet the cost of your raw material. Forget actually meeting the cost of bringing out the product, you know, the wages, the salaries, your overheads, nothing. Not even so the raw material. So what would happen if, if you double the price of a newspaper? You'll drop. It's very pr price sensitive. You'll yes. drop numbers. And if you drop numbers, then your main source of revenue, which is ad revenue, goes down. And competition is very intense as well. And as I told you, that brand loyalty doesn't really matter for so much any just longer. Buy they'll buy another paper, yeah. Whichever and the moment you try and do it collectively, it's cartelization. We have a very strong competition commission, <laughs> which incidentally is housed oh. in the Hindustan Times building. Well, is that right? Yes. Okay. yes. So you can't do that any longer. You can't be talking to your competitors and you can't any longer have that conversation that let's all take up our prices. It doesn't work that way. Can you tell us a bit more about this cartelization? Anti-cartelization, presumably, office in, yeah. in sometimes. That's very interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. it's the equivalent of your trade practices and yeah. all that you have yeah. in any other country. So the Competition Commission, I mean, it's quite a recent development in India, I would say. It's been there for all of eight <laughs> to ten years okay. uh, in the sense of being functional. I'm sure it was there even before. But now it is very sort of uh, dynamic and uh, they do keep looking for trends in every industry in terms of companies coming together and trying to drive consumer behavior by using the joint cloud. So whether it's telecom or whether it's media or any other industry. What's it called? The Competition Commission of India, CCI. Okay. That's interesting because yeah. it's, and it's, it's a, the regulatory framework in India for institutions. Yes. It's yeah. not one that we hear about and talk yeah. about enough. No, so really. it, is, it is a relatively newer development. I would say it's been active only for the last seven, eight years really, in every sense of the word, of course. I'm sure it existed in some form before that as well. And does it what where do its powers come from? Is it an industry led uh, no, commission it's no or government. Is it government? It's government. So it's headed and by it's a civil constitutional validity. Absolutely. Oh, okay. It doesn't have to be, no, it doesn't have to be. So very often it's headed by a retired person. It doesn't have to be headed by a civil servant. You can get a technocrat in as well. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, that's fair. By the way, um, Shobna mentioned the Hindustan Times House. For those of you who haven't been in Delhi, it's a completely iconic building in the middle of Connaught Place in, in Delhi. Uh, you can't miss it. And and like you say, and I think we have people from the BBC here or ex-BBC. I think BBC Studios are in the top yeah, floor, aren't yes, they, in, yes. in, your, uh, in yeah. your building. Um, okay, so this is uh, this sort of brings me, you said you started in the 80s in in the Hindustan Times, working yes. in it, yes. and you were incredibly young. You weren't even thirty, and mm -hmm. and and you were and you were there really because your father. This was one of his interests, right, as part of the yes. Birla uh, group. Yes. What was that like? There are lots of people here. There are lots of young people here who might be imagining futures in media. Um, what was it like to be a young woman in India in the nineteen eighties from the family of the owners, really, of, of the newspaper, to bring, to come into that scenario with a genuine interest in journalism, which is what you had, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, it will be misleading for anyone who has any interest in the media because the situation's totally changed in India, and therefore, it's not at all uncommon now for women to want to venture out and work, whether it's in sure. the media or whether it's sure. in any other field. So it's not what it was when I actually started working and I also came from a bit of a conservative background, um, 
all of India was pretty conservative. Uh, having said that, I have to say that I am on uh, the I, I am on uh, several international media bodies, whether it's the Commonwealth Press Union or International Press Institute, and the number of women who are actually there holding senior positions. Uh, you can count them on your fingertips. So to that extent, it's not like yeah. India is very different to what's happening all over. I mean, I find there are very few women, period. But India those days and the community that I came from was slightly more conservative than even many others. And therefore, it was kind of frowned upon that, you know, one wanted to get out and work and that also in the media space. It was a male bastion. There were very few women and definitely not holding high positions and uh, it was a very challenging place to be in because you could get in there, you could get a foot in because you happened to be the promoter's daughter. But to actually be empowered or to command any kind of respect or authority was something that you had to earn. And with the mindset being what it was uh, and with people believing that if a male heir ever stepped in, obviously he was there to carry forward the business. But if a woman came in, maybe it's a pastime and maybe you get bored and you'll move out. And therefore, you're not taken seriously enough for the first many years. So it was very challenging. But that's not to say that's a situation today. If any other young woman were to actually enter in any other so-called male bastion, India has come a long way since then. Sure, sure. So though it was very challenging, but it's, we aren't in the same environment anymore. No, but I think what you say about male as being the natural inheritors of the family business yeah. is very much, you know, I mean, the, what was the film that was recently, Zoya Akhtar's new film, Dil Dharakne, though, was, was uh, this was exactly the, the sibling, you know, the daughter was, ha was business savvy, she was interested, she was capable, mm -hmm. but it was unthinkable, the yeah. father, and the son wasn't at all interested, but it was, you know, and that resonated, because I think that is today's yeah. film, I mean, that, that stood at film in yeah. 2015, and that thinking was very different. So what is it that, uh, did, did you have to ask your father or did he ask you to join or what? And you grew up in Kolkata, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. So what had brought you to Delhi and, and, and how did that happen? Well, my husband actually moved to Delhi for business purposes and that's why I moved as well. And I was always very interested in sort of public life. I was a voracious reader. I would read all the papers and when I moved to Delhi, I could follow Hindustan Times more closely than sitting in Calcutta. So I would quite often tell my father that we've missed the story or we haven't reported this correctly, only because I had nothing better to do. And I would read up all the six, seven papers that there were. And uh, so he finally thought that if I had an aptitude for it, that it might be a good idea for me to start taking some interest. So it was at a very informal level mm. uh, by actually being associated only with the Sunday magazine section of the paper for a couple of years to just whet my appetite and see whether I had the staying power or not. And uh, and in those days, Sunday magazines just did fashion and food. No, right? no, they did not. No? They do fashion okay. and food now. Oh, I see. No. Okay, sorry. <laughs> they so only had politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so no. they had, yeah, more, they had longer just, features. Yeah, longer so. features. They were heavy. They were political. Okay. Yeah. So he so gave you a meaty job then. Yes. Okay. Yes, but nonetheless limited to the Sunday section of the ma the magazine section of the Sunday paper. Okay. So it was limited to that. And Hindustan Times House was where it was even then? Yes, it was. Okay. Yes. So you just, and your husband didn't have a problem with this, obviously. No, he didn't. No. Just He's as well. Yeah. Thought, yes. And what about the other women in the family? How did they see this? You have a sister? I do. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think they were really very interested in this particular field or in working at that moment. I think they were all busy with the family. So I don't think that was an issue at all. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
So, but in, in Calcutta, I remember you saying sometime, of course, the newspaper there was the Statesman, wasn't it? Was. It was. I mean, we grew up reading the Statesman and it was like the final word and people would read the Statesman if they wanted to improve their language. That's, that's the way right. newspapers were edited once upon a time. And, uh, but that's changed. The Statesman has totally crumbled as an organization. Has it? Yeah. Really? It has. Even though they have that magnificent building in, in they Delhi. They do, they do, in, uh, they, but that's about it now. <laughs> yeah. And then, so you, you stayed with the newspaper for a long time, working your way through it, and then went abroad and, and, and worked in newspaper offices at the Washington Post and no, so on. No, not really. No, I didn't really go and work in the yeah, Washington but Post. Went, but yeah, I did, uh, I did uh, immediately after sort of, uh, getting into the newspaper and finding my feet. I thought I would want to benchmark the paper or learn from the best. And for me, the best was not another competitor from India. So I decided to go out to Washington. And uh, I, I actually fixed an appointment with Kay Graham, who was then heading the Washington Post. And I was still in my late 20s. And I still remember when I was going up the elevator, there was much trepidation. And I thought to myself, why have I come here? You know, maybe I shouldn't have asked for this appointment because suddenly you develop cold feet. Yeah. And I have to say that she was uh, extremely enduring as a person. Uh, very, very... Uh, uh, being a woman, I think somewhere she sort of understood where one was coming from. We've had similar... Uh, backgrounds in terms of getting into the media and then I spent about 10 days uh, and she put me in different departments trying to understand marketing because it was a concept that was very new for India. We had just a straight dividing line so it was circulation and advertisement. There was nothing called marketing. There was no concept called marketing mm. and there was no concept about brand loyalty because you didn't need brand loyalty. There was no competition and therefore every brand had their own position. And so there was no concept of actually creating that department, whereas all our, all our other papers and um, <coughs> papers in the West always had very strong brand divisions, marketing departments. So I wanted to go and understand and learn that, understand how to set it up. Mm. I also spent time then with the editorial there because that's where my passion was. Mm. And Ben Bradley was the editor. So uh, Mrs. Graham told me, okay, you'll go and sit in every evening meeting, but mum's the word. You're not going to go out and talk about anything that you've heard because those days everything would get translated into page one the next day. It wasn't like, you know, Washington Post either had a very dynamic website where all the news would come. Everyone would guard their stories, wait for their bylines wow. to appear the next morning. So I spent about a week, 10 days in different departments trying to understand best practices, trying to institutionalize the working at HD from being very ad hoc to being more process led. So therefore, it should be something that I felt would make each one of us very redundant, as opposed mm. to being totally dependent on a individual. Mm. And we had in the 80s or in the 70s, editors who were larger than life. And the entire profile of the newspaper only depended on an individual. And that was something that was scary to me. And it had started changing in the West, but it hadn't changed in India. And we had stalwarts and therefore there was a lot of clout and a certain position that they were, certain pedestal they were put on. But at the end of the day, a brand couldn't be hostage to just an individual. And therefore there were lots of processes that I wanted to understand. So I spent a lot of time and actually that was the starting of a very deep engagement and a personal bond uh, with Mrs. Graham and the Washington Post mm -hmm. because after that we constantly kept in touch in the current newspaper that you see is largely the efforts of the design team at the Washington Post. 
who oh, came and okay. spent six, seven months with us and designed and formatted the paper. So that relationship actually translated into a very long-term engagement between both the newspaper groups and uh, even uh, when I had to look for an editor and I was trying to look for talent to start a financial daily, I got a lot of help from the Washington Post. Uh, that was before it got sold. It was still with the Grahams then. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that was the starting of a very long and a very fruitful relationship. So what, what made you want to start Mint? Well, it was an obvious thing to do because we didn't have a financial offering and therefore uh, naturally the readers of our paper, if they wanted to have more sort of in-depth financial news, would have to go to a different brand. Uh, so uh, it was an obvious thing to do to start a financial paper. But the point is that you already had a, one very well-entrenched paper which had large numbers and then you had three or four other titles and a financial newspaper is still a niche product. It's not like a general interest mass newspaper. Uh, so uh, the challenge really was that what kind of a product do you launch and what is going to be your differentiator and how do you cut through the clutter in terms of being noticed and stand apart because you could be a me too, then you're going to be you know, competing for the longest time to actually make a success of what you're doing because you have a market leader who, which, who had the numbers. So the whole challenge was to come out with a proposition that was a little different, that was a little unique, and that would help us cut through the clutter. And that's why we came in with what we call the Berliner concept, which is really a different size and a shape. So it's very distinct to the existing broadsheet paper that was there. So it was a different shape, a different size. And then we decided to go in for a more niche product and we decided to see what were the kind of, uh, uh, what were the challenges or what were the unfulfilled needs of those who actually read a pink paper. Mm -hmm. And we found that in-depth journalism was one such area. And also as our economic reform started in the early 80s and you saw a new generation of Indians uh, who were now engaged and who were aspirational, we realized that it's no longer just an industry person or somebody who's in the corporate sector who felt the need for a financial paper. And therefore, we thought that it's important to, important to try and have a newspaper that actually comes out with clarity on economic issues, but socio-economic issues and how they impact you or our lives. So people had more disposable incomes to invest. They wanted better understanding about the markets. Mm -hmm. They wanted more information on commodities. So it was a new India that we were dealing with post the changes that happened in 1980s. Mm. And there was a new consumer class that was created, actually. Mm. So to try and uh, fill in those gaps, we decided to do some research, put together what we thought was a product profile, and then we launched Mint as a differentiator, not competing with the leading economic or financial paper then, so not really looking at the large numbers. We are, however, the number two in terms of uh, economic papers in India, but there is a gap between us and the leading paper because our profiles are different and the product offering is different and it's meant to be different. Mm. But it's really, it's carved out its own niche. It, very, it has, it's a very distinctive yeah. space. It is very distinctive, yes. Um, but you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about it, that the need to almost understand financial language yeah. was it became almost a responsibility of, sure. of the press yeah. to, to provide it yeah. in a sort of educative fashion mm -hmm. for, for this new, you know, to talk about investments yeah. earlier, apart from life insurance or yes. a couple yeah. of other uh, yeah. known things. There were no other vehicles in which you could uh, invest yeah. your money. But suddenly you saw the emergence of a whole new middle class, yeah. a lot of consumerism, 
because you know when the trade barriers came down and then the Narasimha Rao government actually changed yeah. the entire landscape you suddenly saw the emergence of a lot of new businesses small businesses people with disposable incomes yeah. and they wanted answers also i don't know how old it is in in the uk for instance but to end every bulletin with stock market figures you know is is now it's become completely sure. routine on yeah. indian television and and newspapers to get that yeah. information i don't ever remember that being available so no, readily you're absolutely right yeah um which sort of marks that yeah. shift doesn't it um so let's talk a little bit about uh, your political career then which of course um, shobhna was nominated as rajya sabha mp um tell us what give us an insider's view of of the rajya sabha it's not often <laughs> we get we get to hear this but as much yeah. as you can tell us but it it will be really interesting to hear what yeah. what that was like you know coming uh, <laughs> from the outside and especially coming from the publishing industry there was a certain amount of disdain that we had uh, for the way parliament was conducted uh, if i may say so for parliamentarians as well uh, when i was like sort of a cub reporter as remember spending hours and hours in the press gallery uh, following important debates sitting up till 2 3 am in the morning sometimes because of the voting happening late and one always felt that you know here were these unruly bunch of people and uh, somehow they don't come out with the same sort of uh, suaveness that perhaps people in the media might have and so i went in i was very uh, sort of honored and i felt privileged for having been nominated sure. but i wasn't quite sure as to how regular i was going to be i was quite clear that i would go every day because having accepted it Uh, i think you ought to make that effort but i i wasn't quite sure how much time i would spend and i went in with a slight air of you know god alone knows whether you know this group actually would let work uh, progress what they would do uh, but i have to tell you that being in parliament was a huge leveler it was a huge leveler because you're meeting all kinds of people from very diverse and different backgrounds uh, they uh, may have a very different sort of Uh, way of conducting business to perhaps what the media would want and demand so you know the, the two caps you wear you go back and you write editorials and you're saying all kinds of things about there being more order about things being conducted in a different way but the kind of depth of knowledge that a lot of these parliamentarians have uh, more so because they come straight from the grassroots they have first hand experience of what's happening uh they have a huge wealth of information and you suddenly start realizing that the, you have a lot of respect for that mm. and therefore it is it it was a very humbling experience because you find yourself to be very inadequate very often in areas which really matter so mm. you know we pick up certain areas in the media and uh, very often this charge is made and flung at us that you know sitting and having a 30000 view uh, uh to issues really doesn't solve the issues you know you aren't up close you aren't down there you aren't dirtying your hands yeah. you aren't getting in the midst of what's happening and you do find that in parliament when you actually meet with these people with first hand experience coming in narrating stories participating in debates but very often not that even just you know the conversations that would happen and uh, the anecdotes that they would actually bring uh was quite a kind of a mm. uh, for me it was quite a bit of a game changer oh that's really yes. interesting i mean that and 
I found myself sometimes going back to work and wanting to take up issues or wanting the paper to take up a campaign on issues that otherwise would never have occurred mm. or struck mm. me. Mm. Because, you know, sitting in uh, cities and towns, we actually target just a certain audience where our readership yeah. is. But our readership may be more interested or maybe a different audience, but 70% of India doesn't live there. It lives elsewhere. They have different challenges and there are different opportunities that they demand. And actually, we don't have the audiences who want to get too engaged with that. And therefore, you tailor make your product to suit your readership, which is fine. But it's just that you may do that on a more ongoing basis. But yet, occasionally, you do have to look at some other issues as well. And so a lot of these sort of issues would come up, issues about uh, gender equality, uh, issues about what was happening at the village level in terms of gender issues. And uh, you do start feeling more strongly and passionately about a lot of the issues. And HD may not have been the necessary medium for me to have actually taken up a lot of this. But Hindustan definitely was because the readership is very different. The profiles are very different. And were you able to affect that change? Of I, I was. Up? I was. There were many issues which very often fellow parliamentarians would bring to my attention and uh, you know, we would sit and discuss what's happening. And very often I would go back and get the local paper to actually take it up, mm. to, uh, you know, do a deep dive into that issue, to try and analyze that issue, and very often advocate that issue. At the mm. end of the day, the paper's role has to be one of advocacy as well. Mm. And uh, you can actually uh, implement that more effectively in smaller towns and through the vernacular than you can in English, sure. because there's less cynicism. And so there, there was a lot of advocacy that we did for issues at different points uh, through the vernacular paper. Hmm. That, what you say is so interesting because when you think of people being nominated to the <coughs> upper house of any parliament here or in India, it's really because, and quite rightly, they're bringing their expertise or knowledge in their field to parliament. And what you're describing is the reverse flow. Yeah. Yeah. of what Parliament can sure. offer back to these yeah. fields. Yeah. So we would like Sachin Tendulkar, for instance, to come to Parliament occasionally, but also to go back and and talk about how cricket yeah. politics is managed in mm -hmm. India, which is abysmal, as we know. But uh, we need to, you know, so that, that reverse. So where did these conversations happen? In, in I mean, was it the, in the canteen or was there collision space? Were there social occasions? Yeah, well, social occasions as well because, you know, there are enough events for parliamentarians where all parliamentarians are called, so you interact with each other, you meet over a cup of tea, but you're also sitting and talking to each other in the house very often mm. when an important debate is going on. You have others explaining what it actually means and you just hear them through their participation in parliament, of course, which yeah. you're compelled to do when you're actually a member of parliament. You yeah. can still watch them on television, but few people have the time or the interest to actually do that. But when you're sitting there, you're compelled to sit through several debates, you're waiting there for voting, you actually hear a cross-section on a given topic. Yeah. Which well, was very educative. Yeah, that's that's really, yeah. that's genuinely, I mean, you know, new. I haven't heard that mm -hmm. before. But given that scenario and given where the Rajya Sabha is today, right, and what is happening with um, legislative work in Parliament being constantly stalled and, and these wasted uh, sessions, one session after the other, where simply things can't pass because of the impasse with the Rajya Sabha and, and, and the government and so on. What do you make of this current scenario and do you see a way out of it? 
It's actually uh, really unfortunate what's happening because just when you feel that India is really poised to take off, our economy has been performing better than many other countries. Uh, we have a demographic dividend. We have the skill set, though not as much as we would like to. And yet legislation does not happen because of parliament not allowing it to happen. It is very frustrating. But unfortunately, the nature of politics, and I've been closely observing politics for at least 25 years or more, and I haven't found as much acrimony as I see today ever that I can remember. It's become extremely personalized. It's become very acrimonious. And you oppose for the sake of opposing. It's no longer opposing something because uh, you don't support a particular legislation. It could be very, the very same legislation that you espoused when you were in power. But today you want to block it. And actually this started, I would say, not only during the current government's time. I, I think uh, uh, one saw this... Uh, uh, for the last five or six years where politics turned very, very personal, very bitter, in an unhealthy manner. I still remember the days when Indira Gandhi was a prime minister and uh, Pilu Modi was a uh, very articulate, bitter critic in parliament and they would spar in parliament. But she would call him home for tea, they would sit over a cup of tea, there was a certain civil behaviour. We don't see that in politics any longer and that's really unfortunate because at the end of the day, you know, there, there needs to be a certain alignment uh, in terms of national, interest, national yeah. interest and nation building. But politics has become so personal that uh, legislation's actually been held hostage to that. And I don't know what the way forward is going to be. You know, we keep going from session to session, hoping that there's going to be some thaw yeah. and you see some forward movement because we've had a whole slew of legislations that have been held up, yeah. which could have potentially actually transformed our economy yeah. over the next six, eight months if they had gone through. And these are all wasted opportunities, but that's the nature of bitterness that's actually uh, now, you know, that marks our political discourse. Yeah. And, and in, I mean, the talking of political discourse, especially in the last few months, the, there seems to be, on the one hand, a great optimism, like you said, uh, of India being on the verge of, of taking flight and, and, and shining, ultimately. And on the other hand, a real worry about the growth of intolerance in public life, right? How do you see this developing from here? It is a... It's a real it is worry, a, isn't it? It's a real worry. It's very disconcerting. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we feel that we have... Uh, just so many opportunities that are in our favor. Uh, but on the other hand, you have uh, the entire narrative getting sort of uh, overtaken by other kind of uh, incidents that are playing out, uh, creating divides in society, uh, lack of tolerance, uh, lack of responses to such occurrences. Um, and the entire narrative, even internationally, on the one hand, we have a prime minister who's actually doing a very hard sell and doing quite a decent job of it, going from nation to nation, country to country. People are looking at India with some sort of renewed interest of being a place of great opportunity. But on the other hand, when you actually have the kind of instances that we have seen in the last couple of years playing out, and even though we may say that these are all fringe elements, but these fringe elements are not being reined in, and there are no sort of 
comments on what's happening, it's actually sending very conflicting signals to the international community as well. So on the one hand, you're wooing everyone and you're trying to get people to look at India differently, to look at India as a land of opportunity. But on the other hand, uh, if you look at the fault lines that have suddenly emerged, I mean, every other day, I mean, I've been in London now for the last five, six days, but every day I actually see a new instance coming up. Again, you know, this growing intolerance, which is actually very worrying. It is very worrying and it's actually showing what, you know, social scientists, those of us who think about Indian society quite deeply always knew that there is a deep violence at the core of Indian social life. You know, whether you think of, you keep the 70% who live in villages or you think of the population of Dalits or, or our huge numbers of displaced populations of indigenous people, it's been a very violent record on the one hand of, uh, and yet, and now in a sense, yes, it's surprising and it is, there been such a huge escalation of intolerance, of utterances, of gestures, of people taking umbrage at the, at the slight. And I'm particularly interested in your, th- in your thoughts on this because as a paper, at least, you've very uh, consistently kept a centrist <coughs> secular line right, as a policy. And what is developing now is precisely a threat to that. So how does, you know, how do you respond to that as opinion makers? Well, I think the response of the opinion makers cutting across media groups has definitely been in terms of condemning what is happening. You know, the fault lines are there because it's a very unequal society in India. And that's the reason why, unlike many other nations, India has to have a more inclusive growth. And we have had a more inclusive growth, and therefore the economic parameters very often have been frowned upon by many other developing countries that want India not to have so many subsidies and all. But it's a very unequal society, and therefore uh, perhaps uh, in the short term it's a must. But... I don't totally agree with you that there is a lot of pent-up anger. Yes, there is a lot of disquiet and there is frustration and there are divides. But very often these are played upon, I believe, as a publisher by interest groups in order to actually polarize sections of society. Because wherever you've seen these kind of uprisings, There has been some political affiliation. And even if I were to say that there's been no political affiliation, why is condemnation not coming in a more upfront manner, in a more immediate manner, in a more firm manner? Why is there just such a stony silence as a reaction to so many, whether it's saying that you can't have beef or whether it's saying that somebody cannot perform in a city or you can't have a book release in a city, because the, the person who's the author of the book has written against India. So every single day there are these kind of instances, but I don't hear a strong response being critical of them. Yeah. And, and especially in this day and age when, you know, people are sort of reacting to events on the go. Even before you finish your sentence, there's opinion on Twitter. So you no longer have to wait for the print down. media for, to come and interview you and to give a response. Yeah. Yeah. So the lack of response is actually what is bothering us in the media. Yeah. It's, you know, one is the incident itself, where very often 
there are reasons why it's happening very often perhaps something has led to it but on the other hand the lack of response yeah. is even more worrisome and that's a very stark difference between say how the political establishment and the media work here and say in india you know i've never failed to be um both astonished and thrilled at the roasting that the prime minister of a country or the or the mm-hmm. chancellor can get in a studio right whether it's on television whether it's on radio it routinely happens um in a sense and which is not to say it is all without flaws but you know this certainly happens we can't even begin to imagine that scenario can we where the prime minister of a country feels like our current prime minister or pri- previous prime ministers who also have been very silent um are um, expected to respond to the press you know and that's what the press is there for to hold them to account on behalf of the listening population and can can do you think that might ever change well yeah i hope it would change and it is changing i mm. uh, i think it also depends on you know uh, different governments and each one's response and level of accountability also sort of varies um currently uh, i mean this current government at the moment uh, does not really seem to be wanting to engage with the media very much at uh, all we only talked at we are not, i mean that's the point that we have to listen we can't ask yeah because then you aren't asked uncomfortable questions yeah so um but equally uh, the prime minister for instance has gone through endless number of television interviews before he became prime minister and to that extent was open and accountable and it go through the same grilling that you're talking about mm. so it's not like that level of journalism is not there or that politicians feel that they're not answerable i think what happens is sometimes you know when you have absolute power yes you feel totally secure in that and you feel you don't need the media you don't need the messenger because you will get your message out nonetheless you know it will be on your blog you'll get it out through the social media yeah and why should you answer uncomfortable questions Yeah only no democratic government ever has absolute power to them no, I mean, they're not but you go through phases when you know yeah, and that yeah, seems no, to be the phase but i'm sure the phase would change yeah and it was different even earlier and the very same state actors today were very answerable 2 years ago and i'm sure will be answerable going forward yeah. but sure the phase that we are going through just now maybe it's still the honeymoon period we've just been a year and a half into a new government Long and at the moment the engagement with the media is totally is not there no, no. we aren't taken on foreign trips we aren't given oh, interviews yes, yeah. yes right to information is slowly seeing a natural death there's uh, been a yes. lot of oh, recent yes. writing oh, about yes. that yeah, yeah. now we used I'm to use it as a main tool for breaking mm. news and now we don't get responses it gets rejected all the time is that right yeah, yeah. so if you sent a question to pmo and oh, no. you wouldn't you know you won't get an answer and from ministries you rarely get an answer most of them are getting rejected So that's been one grudge of the media that you know RTI is becoming quite defunct and that was like a lifeline for us at least for those journalists who wanted to move beyond lazy journalism sure you know it was a very but powerful ha- tool but have you been making a stink about this oh yes yes that yes yeah, that okay yeah. because i read a couple of editorials just yes. yesterday actually about RTI Aruna Roy just saying that RTI needs yeah. a second lease of sure. life and and so on. Now I'm conscious that a lot of people will have questions and and we'll open it up if yeah. that's okay yeah, too. There are several other questions I would like to ask but I'm sure they'll come up and if they don't I'll ask them while you're thinking. 
So should we take a few questions? There's stewards with uh, microphones. Um, and I think we have a gentleman there in the corner. Uh, can I request everybody to keep your question short and to definitely ask a question? If you make a comment, I will cut you off. Stewards are under strict instructions to take your microphone away. So please, uh, please ask a question. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have a question in relation to what you said about how India is sending a, a mixed signal to the international investment community. A few years ago, you had Formula One going into India. I don't think it did too well, for whatever reason. I, I hope you can enlighten me, because we um, have a brand, uh, myself, and we, are, we have an air show. We, are, we, do it, we have done it in 16 countries around the world. We have 60 TV uh, stations all over the world covering this event. We want to bring it to <coughs> India, but we have our reservations based upon what happened to Bernie Eccleston with Formula One. And I just want to know, from your point of view, should foreigners like ourselves bring luxury items to India, and what could be the challenges ahead for us? Thank you. So he should have been here as well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there's a very niche market for luxury items, uh, a very, very uh, small section of our population. But that section per se in actual numbers is still large enough. And that's the reason why we had Formula One coming to India and why we have other niche events wanting to come. Because even though it's a very small uh, percentage, it's still large in absolute terms. Uh, but... Um, I still think the Indian market hasn't really matured enough uh, beyond certain sports. Uh, it is opening up a lot now, but I think the call would really be yours whether you would want to have a much larger participation in terms of the Indian audiences. For Formula One, uh, the inconveniences and the organizing was also much criticized by the press. So I'm not so sure whether it was because Indians are not ready because it's a chicken and egg situation. Very often, you know, you're sort of, you need to expose them to certain events and you need to be incubating those events for people and to whet their appetite. And you do have a first mover advantage if you were to do that. Uh, so Formula One, I think, also had other issues. But again, as I said, you have, uh, you'll have a very small section, I think, that would be interested. But that small section may also be large enough numbers. Do you have a local partner in India? For? For, like, Formula One. They yes, they, they did. They had actually one of the largest uh, telecom companies who partnered them. And the problem was with the telecoms company not performing to the letter? Or well, I, I wouldn't know that quite honestly because I think they worked as a team, so I really don't know where the fault was, but it wasn't really very well organized. And there was a lot of criticism that they met with. They did it actually for three years and then... Okay, I think there's Andrew in the middle there. Andrew Whitehead from BBC. He's asking me this question. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could push you a little bit about uh, being a person with commanding editorial authority in one of the main Indian media groups and at the same time for a period a member of the Indian Parliament. You talked about the role of the news media in holding politicians uh, and those in positions of authority in public life to account. Indeed, that's probably their main public purpose. But to do that well, I wonder whether there needs to be a, a distance between the news media and politicians and people in, in Parliament in particular, uh, and whether, uh, indeed, there needs to be something more than that. There needs to be a certain level of institutional distrust, which, which you certainly largely have here, and you could say that's one of the 
strengths of the British media scene. And by blurring that line to some extent, I wonder, do you feel that you've in any way constrained the ability of the news media to hold politicians to account? Uh, that's a moot question, and that's a question that, was, uh, that has been asked uh, uh, by many people. Uh, there is a difference. We do have many publishers, actually, who are members of parliament. Uh, I personally feel there is a conflict of interest. I was one of the nominated members of parliament, so I did not belong to a political party, and the whip also did not apply to me. And there have been instances in my six years of parliament where I have voted with different parties at different times. And in fact, uh, voted against the ruling party on several occasions and voted for the ruling party. So uh, no whip applied. But equally, there are many publishers, especially the regional publishers, who are members of parliament and who do belong to political parties. And there is that conflict there because uh, then the paper can't toe any line but the line of that party. Also, our uh, entire regulatory architecture is very vulnerable to uh, government pressure, which doesn't sort of uh, give us the vibrancy that we need in the media. So whether it's uh, uh, broadcasting licenses, whether it's government advertising, which all regional papers are totally dependent on, or whether it's FDI rules, they're all controlled by the government. So unfortunately, our regulatory architecture does leave the media quite vulnerable. And then when you have people belonging to a political party, then what you're saying is absolutely correct. Uh, the only thing I can say to that extent is that I uh, was fortunately not a member of any political party. You have the option of joining a political party within six months of being nominated. Some of my other fellow colleagues did do that. They did join a political party and then become a member of that party. You have more longevity because then you can keep getting elected to parliament time and again. I opted not to because for me, my newspaper was a much larger entity. But equally, there are many regional uh, promoters of newspapers that have many other varied interests and therefore they do not mind joining political parties, they do join them. Uh, but I guess then people also understand that if you belong to a certain party that is say the ruling party in a state like Uttar Pradesh, uh, the readers have enough options today to either reject you or to accept you. It's not the sort of endorsement that you have in the U.S. where you sort of espouse whether you're, you know, endorsing the Republicans or the Democrats with the valid reasons. But you are, in a sense, uh, sort of saying that, yes, I do uh, support this ideology. And therefore, your readers do take whatever you write with a pinch of salt or they choose to continue reading you or buying your product because there's so much of competition. And as I said earlier, there is no brand loyalty. And in fact, uh, uh, it was something that was quite sort of an area of concern for me that I hope my brand doesn't get impacted. Mm. And honestly speaking, if uh, I had to join a political party, I don't think I would have done it because the paper is a yeah. uh, large entity. But on the other hand, there are enough people who have fringe papers or who have smaller papers and the disproportionate sort of uh, clout that they get for other businesses perhaps compensates them. It's not an ideal situation. It's not something that I think actually uh, lends to free or fair journalism, but it, it, it's there. Mm. It is mm. there. I mean, there were three or four colleagues uh, with uh, quite decent-sized newspapers when I was in Parliament okay. belonging to political parties, to both the Congress and the BJP. Yes. The oh, shall remain unnamed? Or? No, it's okay. very... No, but they're all listed entities. The yeah. Jagran group is the largest group in UP, yeah. and the promoter of Jagran was a member of the Samajwadi Party, 
then one of the largest uh, newspapers in the vernacular language in Maharashtra uh, was again a member of the Congress party. So they were all members of political parties and they were, and the largest paper in Urissa, Satpati, they were also, so there, yeah. there are enough, yeah, there are enough publishers who are actually members of political parties. But then again, they have other interests and I guess somewhere it's fine, but otherwise I, I do agree with you. Yeah. Okay, there's a question uh, here in the three in a, yeah. Uh, I have a question regarding the lack of response you mentioned. So I was in India over the summer, and I think during my time there, what I started to realize with some of the political issues you mentioned, such as the beef ban, was that it started to become a mocking matter, sort of taking away the, the actual seriousness. So given the position of a media platform as an actual sort of opinion maker that I think helps people in the market think about and form their opinion. How do you think you have or can use Hindustan Times to fuel that response and sort of actually look at the seriousness that lies in what is going on at the moment? Well, I think that's the difference between different brands. And that's where the pulling power of a brand comes in. So it depends how you want to treat an issue. So you do have the tabloid kind of press that actually sensationalizes the issue or doesn't really deal with the cultural sensitivity that an issue perhaps might demand. And that's where I would assume that responsible brands would have a very different kind of a response to uh, the issue. Also, in today's day and age, you know, we can't any longer comment on issues or sort of uh, uh, have a narrative without getting the reader response because the entire online army makes sure that you know and if you don't engage with your readers, well, there's a, a kind of a, it fuels a whole downhill spiral for you. So uh, I think responsible brands have to live up to the faith that's reposed by their readers. Otherwise, you are more than told and you, you know where you stand with all the social media. I mean, the kind of abuses you get if you've swayed. I mean, depends which way you want to see it, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, trolls, sort of who you want to ignore or is it um, in a sense some kind of a uh, some kind of a check on your standards crowdsourced uh, check on the standards and what you've written so I think uh, you don't have one uniform response but I think that's where the value of the brand comes in I mean, you read something in a tabloid and it's a smart and if the same thing is covered by the New York Times, you'll say it's investigative journalism. And that's the power of the brand. And I think that's what's important. So I think it's as important for brands to be able to maintain that and to retain the brand identity. So yes, issues are dealt with in a very flippant way, uh, a lot by many sort of uh, fly-by-night sites that also come up. But I think for an established brand, so whether it's the Hindustan Times or whether it's many other competitors, I think the gravitas with which you actually approach the issue uh, is what matters in the end. I think, I mean, if I got the sense of the question, it was whether if you thought that this was in fact an extremely dangerous trend or a ridiculous ban, whether you as a newspaper would come out and actually but say... But every paper own... did. I, I can't think of any national paper that did not. Of course they did. Yeah. I mean, to that extent, Indian papers are very sort of... Uh, robust. Very robust, yes. And I can't think of a single paper that didn't. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, of course they did. There's a gentleman... Now, there's several hands up. I've seen... Okay, I'll tell you what I've seen so you don't, don't get anxious. 
the, this one and then two and then three. Yeah, you. No, not you. <laughs> three. Uh, and then four, five, and then six. Okay? So keep them short because we're going to run out of time. But we have time. It's okay. But keep, keep your questions short. I and think uh, one long. can see the difference between the leaders here in the United States or India. Uh, a person who is... Uh, got funny foibles about the beef ban or uh, Hindutva or, you see, uh, no wonder, you see, if there is anything like issues of uh, uh, Islamophobia here in this, uh, immediately the uh, Cameron comes out, you see, or in Obama in the gun control or the uh, color uh, situation. Uh, the leader should give lead, and I don't think uh, because he has come on the crest of the election, he carries on the same foibles which he had before about the beef ban and about the... And I think this will create a hell of a lot of problem, and I think it will give a very bad publicity abroad, saying that he is more uh, inclined, more communal. You see, the whole... Thank you. No, edit- you've said... You, you have, you've made a comment. Do you have a question? Yes, you are very millimouth. You are not able to criticize. You just mentioned about the uh, in, uh, difficulty about the in parliament and this, this difficulty of the uh, argy bargy going on. And I don't think the newspapers are not that brave enough to criticize. Thank you. I think we'll just take that as a comment and, and move that to a question queue in the. Yeah. And um, just building upon what was already spoken, um, uh, with the recent uh, sort of the cases like the Srinambora murder case, etc., um, I was just wondering if you think, uh, we already touched upon accountability, but do you think uh, with the aim of sort of getting that kind of readership and that kind of TRP, that the, the, the entire, like the essence of uh, media as an instrument of accountability for the government is sort of being lost in a way? Because for lack of a better word, the entire sort of issue was sensationalized. And so what would you sort of say, would you be your take on the role of the media, especially in this case? In China Bora's case? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in China Bora's case uh, was yet another example of like a soap opera being played out. I wouldn't entirely blame the media for that. I think uh, one has to look at, you know, different sections and the role that they're supposed to play. So, for instance, yes, for the media, it did become like a soap opera playing out and it's become a TRP game. And each channel wants to see how best they can get more TRPs. But it's also a question of the media being fed with stories. I mean, nowhere in the world do you see the police leaking the way they do in India. And that's something that we in the media have also been critical of in editorials through columnists, that the police has no business actually uh, leaking out stuff unless you know they should reach the end of the, con- uh, the investigation and then whatever is the conclusion should be shared. Because it actually, in a sense impacts the uh, case as it were. It's happened in many other cases in the past, and this half-baked information goes out. The media does lap it up because I think the media's ability to be able to sift through what is accurate and what is being fed isn't perhaps as mature as it ought to be. Uh, I personally do feel that our television channels have a long way to go before we can sort of come up to the level of international journalism. But somehow it seems to sell. Uh, every morning when I wake up, the first channel I go to is BBC because it gives me a world view of what's happening. 
And I often wonder why can't we have the same kind of sanity in the channels back home where it's like, you know, six or seven different little boxes and each one shouting. And if I'm alone at home and I have nothing to do and I feel I need company, I put it on because you almost feel you're sitting in a party, but otherwise there's no takeaway. So I still think that our electronic media is very young, needs to go through a lot of maturity. Uh, sadly, what's happening, sadly what's happening is that they are setting the agenda and very often you see even the print following that agenda. I won't forget, I had one heated argument once when the little boy fell into a well. And uh, this carried on like a soap opera for two or three days. And with all due respect and empathy for the little boy, I felt there were other issues. And I remember having this evening meeting because I take evening meetings for the next day's edition. And I said, no, I think it's really something that we all sympathize with, but I think it can move down the page. I think we can write about what happened to this boy, Bablu, who fell into a well under the fold. And it was immediately met with a lot of resistance. No, 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 but this is playing out the whole day. And so for three, four days, every newspaper, including ours, constantly, you know, the agenda is set. And it has become a bit of a TRP game. But then I believe you get what you deserve. If enough people are watching, are interested, are endorsing the sort of journalism that very often one is actually exposed to, then maybe that's what we deserve at this moment. But if you do actually compare what's happening globally and you see television back, you know, you can see Indian newspapers, at least in terms of journalism, uh, long format journalism, content, being more or less at par. But I don't see that happening in the electronic media at this point, maybe because it's so fragmented and maybe because everyone's fighting for that little share. But uh, I think we have a long way to yes. go. Some who try to strike it out differently actually had miserable TRPs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll take the question here, here in the second row. And then we'll take your question. And uh, then we'll come back to... Okay, and of, often what we are seeing is this social media, which as we still know, Twitter is still restricted to probably one or two percent of the population. So basically, Twitter trends dictating or determining headlines. So do you see this as a dangerous trend related to that is the question of as you talked about how vernacular media is the one which is dominant in the country and how the space of English media is much limited. Then why do Arnav Goswami and Arnav Goswami, Rajdeep Sadasai and Barkhadat matter and why not Hindi journalists or journalists in regional languages? Yeah, that's a good question. Your first, should, yeah. should we take another question? We'll run okay. out of time and okay. then you can yeah. do them both okay. together. Okay. Yeah. Does anyone else have a question about social media, Twitter, and then I can take that too? No? Okay. So can we have the question at the back, please? Actually, I think you've already touched upon the question that I had to ask the question over here. It was about broadcast journalism and about the current state of that in, in India. And, you know, I mean, I despair at the levels to which it's... I don't know whether we'd ever got there, but it's sunk to some very low level where there's no space at all for reasoned argument and objectivity. I think this is what I miss most of all when I'm watching television in India, is this kind of opinions being screamed yeah. at you every night in these 10 talking heads, as you said. So I wanted your views on that, and I think you've already touched yeah, upon yeah. it, so I won't waste more time. So let's... No, so talking about Twitter, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. In fact... Uh, it's uh, a very small proportion. We only have about 14 million, uh, 16 million users on Twitter. Uh, we are the second largest country on Facebook after the United States. The second largest country on the Facebook platform is India. 
so over 130 million over there uh, and uh, we have a large large uh, over 70 uh, million of uh, whatsapp users who are actually constantly sharing content and sharing information so twitter is small but hugely influential and we try and use twitter almost as a ally of uh you know people of a sort of interconnected community so we have a tool called data miner that helps us dig deep into twitter and see shifts in sentiments so we immediately spot shifts in sentiments uh we also track important people through twitter very often we get breaking news so no twitter isn't really a threat at all in fact if at all we have learned how to collaborate with social platforms because they have a far deeper engagement with the audiences than we do and they are here to stay so either we sort of you know collaborate with them and get as large a share as possible in terms of revenues brand loyalty and in terms of uh, uh getting the connect with community or we sort of you know learn to innovate but that is going to take a while so in the short term we have to do both so i see twitter as being a very collaborative part of a media strategy in fact we use this tool data miner only to be digging into twitter all the time so i think it's actually it, it gives us lots of leads But and we involve our readers in decision making they respond to stories very often we get exclusive pictures and data sent through readers so it's a very collaborative effort i mean for the english uh circulation often the sometimes <laughs> the overlap with twitter users is probably much higher than but the trends But in the english in speaking Hindi. world yeah So you know for instance uh, Prime Minister Modi wanted to invite President Obama to be the chief guest for Republic Day. He never sent a formal invite. He actually invited him over Twitter. Now that's breaking news whether I run a Hindi paper or a Uriya paper or a Bengali paper who cares. It could be 14 million users but every single paper had to carry it. Yeah. And then President Obama responds that yes he's going to come again on Twitter. So you can't ignore Twitter. It's 14-15 million but it's hugely powerful. Yeah. Okay. So and it cuts across languages. Could I just ask it up pretty loud? No, it's being recorded, so. Uh this was about the point that you made uh you know, uh media promoters having political associations. And the first part of your conversation was about the business of media. Journalism to me first and foremost has always been the face of freedom of speech. So my question to you essentially is that with the commerce driven media that it has become today and you know families owning uh, business uh, media and with political associations and um, the state becoming what it has become where do you see the future of the freedom of speech and a counter question to that would be how does the accountability of media come into this who sets the agenda for that the the readers the consumers nobody has a monopoly any longer in fact what technology has done is been a great leveler it's democratized the media because today you can have your voice on the media you no longer need somebody with deep pockets to be able to finance you to give you the platform so at the end of the day it's a reader's choice and to me that is the best kind of you know uh uh it's a best validation of what you're doing if on the one hand you know you are sort of espousing a certain cause or a certain line which is not uh, sort of uh, in uh, uh, keeping in with what the, your readers want what your target audience wants they have options there's no brand loyalty left 
At the end of the day, you are in a very competitive market space and technology has been a great leveler that today nobody needs. You know, you have so many online magazines. You have so many online sites for opinion. You have people breaking news. You don't need deep pockets and you are competing with each and every one of them. So either you have a product and you rise to the occasion or you don't. So to my mind, the greatest validation of what you're doing actually comes from your readers. They're no longer compelled to be with you. So if what you're saying is correct, that freedom of expression, nobody is challenging that. There are enough and more sites, blogs, magazines, online. You no longer need deep pockets. And that to me is the greatest check and balance that the uh, industry has. If I may add to that, I mean, there's a distinction between, you're quite right, I agree, the free and uh, freedom of expression per se, in terms of airing opinions and, you know, what we're saying about, about television, or indeed about blogs and so on. Yes, that's democratized. Anyone can have their say. You don't need to. But journalism, as we understand it, investigative journalism, which you almost never hear about that much, is about not just about saying what you think, you know, whatever kind of view you have. It's not about opinion. It's about investing in an infrastructure. It's about gathering evidence. It's about pay paying people to go out and look for the stories, to work on the, you know, to chase leads, etc., which does require money. But not the kind of money that traditional media required. You don't need equipment. You don't need capital expenditure. You don't need to put in 15, 20, 30 million in buying a printing press. You don't need towers to broadcast. So the capital investment that journalism requires today has drastically gone down. Yeah. So hopefully and, that's we'll... a reason, and that's the reason why you see so many uh, sort of uh, so many investigative uh, uh, magazines as well. Yeah. Totally digital. Yeah. I mean, I can think of we've, Scroll we've, and where I was about to say. Yeah. You know, we've had so many in the last two or three years. Yeah. Uh, there's been a real flowering. Okay. Yeah. So. <coughs> yeah. So, Madam, if I may ask, uh, we have seen recently that uh, almost all uh, media houses have some kind of affiliation to certain political parties, and they are certain biasness. Um, I, before coming to this, uh, you know, talk, I did some research, and I saw an interview of you in News Laundry, and you said that uh, you believe in a Congress ideology, then a BJP ideology. So can I assume that Hindustan Times is more Congress biased than BJP? Uh, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I do remember the interview to News Laundry and I said that we believe in a more centrist, secular approach. Now, when you look at the various political parties, the Congress's ideology seems to fit the more centrist, secular approach than the BJP's does. But the economic agenda of the BJP, to my mind, is a lot more what we've constantly endorsed. If you've also been a reader of Mint, you'll see that Mint has been constantly endorsing the so-called uh, economic agenda that the BJP has espoused and not the Congress. So it depends where. If you're asking me about the beef ban, perhaps I would go with the Congress ideology. If you're asking me for the rollout of GST, and many other reforms, I think I would go with the BJP. So I think it's very issue-based. And that's what the newspaper reflects. And if you were to care to read the edits of the paper, you would see ample support of endless number of policies, whether it was a land acquisition bill, which was thwarted by the Congress, or whether there was criticism of the land acquisition bill that was brought in during the UPA days. And so you have to read the articles and opinion to actually form your opinion. Thank you.
Good evening, ma'am. I wanted to ask you, considering the popularity that online media is gaining in today's world, the online journals, the e-readings that we have with the applications coming in, do you think print media has a dim future? Back in India especially. And do you think it affects the HT particularly per se? It certainly does. I mean, uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, we have headroom for literacy in India And that's the reason why you're seeing growth, because as people migrate from the illiterate pool to the literate pool, the first point of contact becomes a newspaper. So because of this headroom for literacy, we have growth and we are going to see growth, at least in the vernacular, for the next decade. I mean, I can't forecast what may happen after that. But as far as the English business is concerned, I constantly tell my team that always feel that you have a runway of two years and no more. And we are fortunate if we get an extension beyond that. But let's not plan for four years, five years, because, you know, you can't defy international trends. There can be a lag effect and that's it. But if you're seeing a certain trend that's sort of very widely spread all over, India is bound to follow. We have the luxury of time and that's about it. And if we don't, within that time, adapt to a different revenue model and a different business model, we will perish. So it is something which is of huge concern to all of us in terms of having an alternative business model. Yeah. Uh, good evening, ma'am. Um, um, in my opinion, like today, uh, the media is a bridge between the people and the government. And I think that's one of the reasons why today we are much more informed citizens. But then I also feel that media only broadcasts or portrays or writes um, only the interests that they have. A specific case, like when the monsoon session did not really function, the media was only talking about how the government is at fault, they, you know, they're wasting the tax money and all of that. But I just felt that it wasn't activating the citizens. It wasn't telling them that you, it's your loss. I mean, the government is not working towards the national interest. Why is that that the media only picks topics or picks peoples and actors to represent and not everybody at once? Especially in this <laughs> You know, this I don't agree with that assessment, and I'll tell you why. Firstly, as far as the monsoon session was concerned, the media was constantly bringing out charts to show how much of taxpayer money was being wasted. So one, it was not like the media was not informing the people. It was trying to instigate the people that, you know, come out against this drama that's being played out. You know, it's our money. It's the taxpayer's money that's actually being wasted because parliament is not functioning. The media was very critical of the opposition for actually blocking the house. So I would say that the media was critical of the government, but to a far lesser extent than it was actually of the opposition for not allowing the house to function. But, you know, going back to what I spoke about, uh, about Twitter, and though it's very small, but you pick up trends. And I don't think the media can go totally following their own agenda because you're no longer staying in a cocoon where, you know, your readers don't tell you what they think of you. That connection that has happened because of the social media is a reality, and it's a reality where on a daily basis, we have all these online howlers who are sort of abusing us if we haven't told the line or we haven't picked up an issue often enough. So we can say they are trolls, but on the other hand, we have to be aware that, you know, we are no longer living in the days where we felt we could set the agenda. The agenda is pretty much being set by these online armies who constantly are howling at you if you don't follow what they think, you know, people are talking about. So I don't think we have the luxury of doing that. You know, newspapers could be in a sort of a vacuum where they decided what they wanted to do. But social has totally changed that.
That's really worrying, though, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's sort well, of it is worrying because outsourcing, yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can say that it's a crowdsourced Crowd, yeah. uh, kind of a uh, you know uh, check on our standards, but on the other hand, you can say it's trolling at its worst. Yeah, and I'd yeah. like to ignore it. Yeah, yeah. So it depends which way you want to see it. The lady over there. Ah, hello. So. More of a clarification question uh, throughout the discussion, even this answer. Uh, we're talking about passing the onus on the viewer of the reader. Like you are going to present what the reader wants. But don't you think in that process, you are kind of foregoing what you started with, the vision that Hindustan Times started with. Like I agree, business of business is business. So you're in a competitive space and you have to talk about bubble in the well or leaked information. But where do you draw the line? Because it's like a parent-child thing. If a child would want something which is obnoxious, that doesn't mean parent is going to give it. Yeah. So where is that somebody like Hindustan Times which has a legacy or other players who are established trustworthy players would essentially then walk on that tightrope, whether you're falling into an unethical side of it or just running a business, then then how good are you compared to these online, out of the, I mean, probably working on the basement kind of uh, journalism? So what are your views on so, that? So you don't, and uh, that's where you have to take a tough call that very often you break with what you think is trending at the moment. And to uh, go back to the Sheena Bora example, for instance, uh, it was being played out like a soap opera uh, all the time on television. Uh, our competitor, and I won't take names, had a full page dedicated to Boras. Uh, we decided we will not do that. It was a very gruesome uh, and a, a awful story, which did dominate page one for a few days. But we decided after a couple of days that there are other issues of national importance and therefore the story will still get mentioned, will still find space. But it's just the hierarchy of stories changes. You don't devote a full page because that full page is then filled with all kinds of leaked gossip. So we decided to do away with it and we didn't follow the trend. So you have to use your discretion and very often say that, okay, even though television was playing it out 24-7 and even competition was giving one full page every day, we decided not to do it. And we stuck to our decision. So there are enough times when you don't do that. But there are enough times also when you feel that all your readers are very sort of engrossed in a particular story, not necessarily of a scandalous nature, but stories which do have other ramifications. And you do sort of give the readers uh, more information on a topic that they are wanting. Okay, I think we have time for one final Last question time. here. Yeah. Oh, did you had one too? There's one in the front. Okay, let's take them both quickly, though. Um. I've observed that the BBC has recently ventured into the Indian media market on social media. How do you see this as affecting uh, the industry as a whole, and what are your views on it? Okay, and then let's take the question, and then we'll stop. Now, I have a question. It's related to the Nepal earthquake and the media coverage of that. Um, there, I'm not too sure if you're aware of it, but there was a Twitter hashtag that was trending saying, go home Indian media. Um, do you really believe that at this stage, being an eminent member of the Indian press, do you think that the issue of sensitivity in media has not been given enough attention? And in this race for readership and TRPs, um, sometimes we forget that we need that reporters also need to be sensitive about how they cover. I, I, totally, I totally agree. I mean... Uh, I felt that the Indian media does need to be more sensitive. Uh, there are certain cultural issues that need to be kept in mind. 
there are certain uh, do's and don'ts which uh, more uh, mature uh, sort of uh, more mature media markets follow uh, which are very slowly becoming part of our media dna so for instance how do you report say a terrorist activity we've learned the hard way we've learned the you know we've learned through a lot of big bats and all but i really think that our media is uh, needs to mature a lot more the electronic media and uh, i could totally empathize with you know some of the comments i saw that hashtag and i did see the outburst on twitter but there were many insensitive stories that were appearing and less in the national media but a lot in the vernacular media and i think the media does need to have more sensitivity there i mean we all need to we have so many regional editions and to be very honest with you it's impossible for any one individual to be aware of what's going in so there are enough times and more where not only me but even the editors of various uh, regional papers that we have are slightly upset with the coverage because the more you sort of go percolate keep going down to district level block level you know we have different editions the caliber of the talent that you get is not necessarily what you would want and therefore there is always that learning curve in trying to actually get the quality that you feel a brand has to stand for and you want to take his question on bbc no i think i think competition will only help everyone sort of get their act together and help the industry as a whole i think competition is always good it sets certain new standards and hopefully compels the media to also try and follow the standards if they are indeed higher but on the other hand if the local media does have a greater pulse on what's happening then it's good competition for bbc as well by the way the bbc is very well represented in this room as is your paper and other journalists so it's it's been a wonderful occasion actually to see this dialogue with journalists and students thinking about these issues and you've been absolutely brilliant and patiently responding to to each of them with with such uh, insight and 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 honesty i think so thank you very much shobhna thank you thank you, thank you. Thank you.